Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity Podcast. Singularity Podcast is a feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Socrates and as always I will be the man with the questions. Today I am privileged to have Dr. Aubrey de Grey as my guest with the answers. Dr. de Grey is a controversial author, gerontologist and chief science officer at the Sense Foundation and is most famous for his quest to defeat aging. Hi, Aubrey, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here, Aubrey. Um, I probably should mention to all of our viewers and listeners that this is the second time you're giving me an interview, and the first one was by far the most popular podcast that I've ever done. It has something like 13 or 1,400 uh, social bookmarks, and it has been heard by m- about, I think, 30-some thousand people so far. So, um, by popular demand, thank you for being back on the show. <laughs> so, um, there have, I think it's been about seven or eight months since the last time you were on the show. And uh, last time we talked, you told me that there's about 50-50 chance that our, uh, um, that we would be able to reach longevity escape velocity within our lifetime. So my first question to you is this. Has there been any new discoveries or recent developments during that period that have tipped the scale one way or another in that uh, estimate that you gave the last time? No, I don't think there have actually been any scientific advances during this period, either good news or bad news, with respect to that estimate. I think that the main thing that has happened, which I view very much as good news, is a continuation of progress in the public attitude, the public reception to the idea of defeating aging. I think that one of the most important, most major barriers to the development of this technology in the time frame that I'm looking at is the lack of funding for it, which, of course, is a consequence of lack of public enthusiasm. So the more that we can improve public enthusiasm, the better. And there have been a few good steps forward in that regard. Uh, one thing that springs to mind is that a couple of months ago we received, for the first time for some while, a very large donation from a wealthy individual. In this case, it was half a million dollars. Um, that's the most that we've received in any one single donation for a couple of years. Congratulations. And, thank you. And the more people we have doing that, of course, the more... Um, comfortable other wealthy individuals will feel about doing the same rather than you know going out on a limb on their own. A second thing that's happened is with regard to the general public um, profile and prestige of visionary long-term uh, technological predictions and plans. This has really been spearheaded by Ray Kurzweil and the interest that has been around his concept of the singularity and exactly how it's going to come about and roughly when. Uh, You probably know that there have been a couple of films about Ray Kurzweil that have come out recently. Uh, One of them uh, is really on major release about now and doing a lot of premieres around the USA. And something that was particularly gratifying was that the singularity actually was the focus of the cover story in the current edition of Time magazine. Mm 
which is, of course, a very high-profile publication and very, um, very much a mainstream thing that confers legitimacy on all of this. Uh, furthermore, uh, the article in question, the cover story, was not just about Ray. There was quite a significant amount of treatment of my work and Sense Foundation's work. So I think that definitely constitutes a big step forward. Yeah, uh, I, I agree entirely with you. I have also uh, noticed and commented on the blog about the fact that it seems that the technological singularity and issues uh, related to it, such as transhumanism and so on, are coming or starting to come mainstream as of late. Um, and, I mean, you've mentioned the two uh, documentary movies coming out, and one of them is Barry Ptolemy's Transcendent Men. And I just want to say for the benefit of our listeners that I did interview Barry for this podcast so they can go and listen to that very interesting interview too. But let me go back to your point about the importance of the public perception of, of, of uh, death and aging. Uh, the common term, term used quite often on, in, in popular media is, uh, you know, when some famous person passes away, uh, we often say, well, he died of natural causes or he ended uh, with a natural death. What, what do you want to say about the term natural death? Yeah, I think it is very much um, an epitomization of the problem that we have to cope with in realigning people's expectations and people's aspirations in this area. I think that the... Uh, the fact that aging is something that people call natural, whereas they don't think of specific diseases as being natural in the same way, is very paradoxical. And the only thing that I think it can really be blamed on is the fact that aging has this habit of killing people only at a rather, during a rather narrow range of ages. You know, hardly anyone dies of natural causes or of age-related ill health before the age of 60. And, of course, nobody... Um, dies of, nobody survives um, the um, problems of aging beyond about the age of 120. So we do definitely seem to be in a situation where, um, well, you know, aging is considered to be the thing that gets you if nothing else does, and that there's nothing we can do about it. But, of course, that simple numer numerical fact that it happens to be something that kills people in a relatively narrow range of ages is completely um, unjustified as a basis for any presumption that we wouldn't be able to do anything about aging medically in the same way that we have succeeded so well against, for example, most infectious diseases. So you're absolutely right. I think it's very important to try to point out to people that actually, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, death from malaria or tuberculosis was considered natural. And now we are perfectly happy to do our best to... Uh, do something about it, uh, however natural it may be. And what do you say uh, to, say, religions such as Buddhism, for example, that claim that death is a part of life and the fact that we have life is due to the fact that we have death and it's uh, perfectly meaningless to talk about life if we don't talk about death at the same time, just like we talk about left and right and up and down and so on and so on. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's one way of looking at... The, they call the, it, I think, embracing the paradox. Right. I think that is indeed one way of looking at, you know, the meaning of life and the purpose of life. 
I think there are plenty of other ways of looking at that, and so I don't really espouse any particular opinion about that. But the key point, of course, is that all of this is about death. It's not about death from any particular cause. So if people live to an average of a thousand and they only die from causes that are, that are independent of how long ago they were born, you know, things like being hit by trucks and so on, then death still plays that same role in relation to life that it does in today's world where we die of aging, or indeed in the world of 200 years ago when most people died of infectious diseases and so on. In other words, I don't really think there's any message there in terms of the desirability of alleviating the suffering that's associated with age-related ill health. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, speaking of living to a thousand years and so on, let me ask you this, this kind of personal question, and I'll start it with a, with a sort of funny or not-so-funny story from Bulgaria. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a famous Bulgarian yogi who uh, would come out on national television and who would make claims such as, you know, I would live until 100 years and over 100 years and because, you know, I'm doing yoga every day and I'm very, leading a very healthy lifestyle. Anyway, long story short, the guy died at 57 from a heart attack. And um, let's put that together with Ray Kurzweil's claims that he intends to live forever himself. Um, and just, I think, four or five years ago, uh, he actually had to undergo a bypass surgery, um, and he also um, has had previous history of type 2 diabetes in his uh, late 30s and so on. So let me ask you this. How long do you think you would live? Well, at the moment, things are looking pretty good for me. Um, I don't have any hints of diabetes or history of cardiovascular disease in my family or any of the short straws that Ray has. Um, and indeed, when I've had very sophisticated measurements of my metabolic state and you know, measuring lots and you know, dozens and dozens of things in my blood and so on, it does de definitely seem as though I'm doing pretty well for my age. Um, but, of course, that's no guarantee. There are plenty of other people who look as though they're doing well and then something bad happens, they get a particularly aggressive cancer and die at 60 or something like that. So it's, it's of course, very unclear. I think, really, what it's all about is maximizing the chances of living longer. And in my view, I think that people of our sort of age, people in their, their 40s, are in a position to, I, I think the probability distribution of how long we're going to live is probably bimodal. In other words, either we're going to die before therapies that seriously combat aging come along, in which case we'll probably die before the age of 100, or we will survive long enough to benefit from those therapies, in which case we have a pretty good chance of living to 1,000. Um, so, in fact, it seems quite unlikely that most of us will die at a three-digit lifespan. It will either be a two-digit lifespan or, a more, or, or four or more. Uh, when you say a thousand, is that just like an arbitrary number or that's just the synonym of saying Actually, it indefinite? It's not completely arbitrary. Uh, the number of thousand is roughly the number you get, plus or minus, let's say, a factor of two, if you ask how long people would live on average given the same risk of death per year that young adults in the West experience today. Uh -huh. So, of course, young adults are not dying of any causes relating to aging, but they are dying of stuff that presumably anyone would die of, however 
oh, however long ago they were born, if they were in that same state of health. And so we can ask what would be, if you like, the half-life of someone who had that risk of death per year indefinitely. And, of course, it's somewhat arbitrary in the sense that what that presumes, that calculation, is that we will not have any improvements in our ability to avoid causes of death other than aging. And, of course, that's a really silly presumption. So, in fact, it's probably rather a conservative prediction. But it does have some mathematical basis, at least. It's not completely random. So the, the basis of the mathematical uh, estimate here is that, uh, say, for example, factors such as me being run over by a truck while I'm riding my bicycle outside on the street and, and other factors like that. Given a, a thousand years of a lifespan, chances that something like that or similar to it are very likely to occur at the current uh, rate of it happening. Right, and in fact, they're, of course, not actually very likely to occur at that current rate. They're li that, that rate is likely to go down with time. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So, um, you've mentioned, you just touched briefly on uh, some very sophisticated tests that you have done uh, to evaluate your own health condition. What kind of tests would you recommend uh, that people do, at what age, and in particular, what do you think of advanced uh, testing such as uh, DNA testing from companies such as 23andMe and so on? Should people do that? Should they wait until it's a little bit more advanced and we know a little bit more about the DNA? Well, let's start with the sort of metabolic tests that I've benefited from in the past. Those tests, uh, I had them done at the Kronos Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and I'm not sure that Kronos actually offers that service still. I think they're winding down. Uh, but there are other places that do the same sort of thing, including, for example, uh, Terry Grossman, uh, who is, of course, a co-author with Ray Kurzweil of a couple of books and has a clinic out in Colorado. There are other ones like that. Um, essentially, what they do is they measure a large number of metabolic parameters, uh, concentrations of things in your blood that change with age, and so you can get some kind of indication of your biological age from that sort of analysis. There are also physiological and cognitive tests involved in the same analysis. And, of course, it's all very approximate, but it's better than nothing. And, um, you know, if you do very well on those, then you've got good reason to feel good. Um, conversely, if there are particular things where you're doing badly, then that may lead you to take more care of your diet or your lifestyle in some other way in order to slow things down. Um, so, so I think those tests are useful, and I think it's, even though they're quite expensive, it's definitely a good idea for anyone to take those tests at least once. Ideally, one should take them uh, every few years so as to get some kind of longitudinal information, but even if you can only afford to do them once, that's a great deal better than nothing. Now, in terms of the genetic um, information that you mentioned, there's really two different sides to that. There's, first of all, getting the genetic information, and then there's getting the interpretation of the genetic information. Exactly. Uh, so at the moment, what we have is an ability to get, um, for a very small amount of money, like $100, the analysis that 23andMe, for example, will provide, which is essentially a high coverage of um, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And that's certainly valuable, but... As I'm sure everybody knows, there's also the option of getting one's entire genome sequenced, which will, of course, pick up plenty of stuff that the single nucleotide polymorphism analysis would not. And that is still very expensive, but the price is plummeting. Mm -hmm. So, personally, I think that 
even whether or not you get uh, some analysis from 23andMe or a company like that, it's also extremely valuable to get a whole genome sequence as and when the price comes down to a level that you can afford. Now, the reason that's useful is because, the reason either of those things is useful is because, of course, one's genetic information stays the same as time goes by. And so one can constantly reevaluate the meaning of that genetic information in the context of new data that comes out from scientists around the world. And indeed, 23andMe are very focused on, um, on, on that part of the business, on doing that analysis and constantly updating that analysis in the light of new data. In fact, my understanding is that 23andMe are very much geared to switching over to doing genetic analysis at the level of whole genomes as and when that becomes um, commercially uh, viable. Yeah. Uh, and, and they'll be able to use the same genomic and genetic analysis tools that they're already using um, with different um, underlying data. Yeah, one argument that I have heard about people um, waiting a little longer is the interpretation issue that you've mentioned. And um, that relates to the fact that uh, if you do several tests at several companies at the same time, uh, uh, while the results may be uh, pretty much the same, the interpretation thereof may be substantially different. So in other words, different companies would interpret your chances of developing particular health conditions and the likelihood thereof at a different rate and so on. Uh, would you like to say anything about that? Should we wait based on that or should we still go ahead and do it? Uh, I would say go ahead and do it because the things that are likely to differ in terms of different companies or different individuals' interpretation of particular genomic data are going to be things where there's more science to be done and where the, the, that more science is probably being done. So those are precisely the things that will, you know, be resolved fairly soon. And it doesn't matter which company you went to initially, a year or two down the road, they'll give you the same interpretation of that data at once the science has become clearer. Conversely, I think that the problem of there being some data in this gray area where some people will interpret it one way and some will interpret it another way is not something transitory. It's something that will always be the case. There will always be a cutting edge of, of scientific understanding of the genome. And uh, so things that, are current, things that are currently not even understood at all will be understood to a partial degree and in different ways by different people a few years from now. So in other words, I don't think that really constitutes a good argument for delaying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my take on that is similar. I mean, as long as we get the accurate data, the interpretation of time, uh, our interpretation of time will evolve. And, and since the data will be constant, the interpretation should get better and better, I, I hope. Uh, right. That's what science is all about, right? Having the same data and getting better at interpreting it in time. Um, recently, probably... A few weeks ago, I actually interviewed Andrew Hessel for uh, Singularity One-on-One. -on -One. And uh, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but uh, one of the things that he shared with me later on during a lunch we had with him um, was that he loves your work and especially your enthusiasm. But in terms of timeline uh, of defeating aging, he was rather skeptical. Mm -hmm. And he gave two reasons for that. Uh, his first reason is that he couldn't see any specific uh, concrete um, development that could give us hope that we could accomplish that. 
And the second reason was that even if there were such a thing, um, usually a single generation of any treatment t uh, takes 10 to 15 years to develop. And even if we had such a starting point, we would have many generations uh, of that drug being developed before we are able to postpone or at least halt uh, the aging process. And therefore, we're looking still at many dozens and perhaps over 100 years before we can see any such hope of success. What do you say to arguments like that? Okay, so let me take those two arguments separately. Okay. First of all, in terms of the sheer um, time frames for developing the technology and then the time frames for refining and releasing that technology. I think for getting to, sta getting to the, the, the initial stage, the key point is that we are seeing a constant acceleration of the rate of progress within biology and we certainly need to get a lot faster at this. We need to develop a lot of different things, many of which are currently at a very early stage. But we can describe the, the particular problems that we still need to solve in quite a lot of detail at this point. So I think when I, whenever I look at any particular specific um, component of sense, uh, well, the time frames that I'm suggesting are not appreciably more optimistic than the time frames that would be estimated by the researchers that are working on that particular area. When someone is working in another area, so that they're not particularly specialist on the first area, then they do tend almost always to be um, much more pessimistic. But that's simply because they don't have a sufficiently detailed idea of what's already been done. And, of course, I make it my business to know as much as possible about what's already been done in all of these areas. So that's really why I, I tend to find that I'm a little bit more optimistic or perhaps substantially more optimistic than most commentators in this area. Now, the other point that, Andrew, that you're mentioning that Andrew made is an extremely important one, and I think that <clears throat> it's extremely useful to look at it in detail because I think that Andrew is absolutely right that... <coughs> that if the various components of sense were developed and brought into the clinic within the regulatory regime that we see today in the West, whether it's the USA or anywhere, then um, they would indeed be very, very slow. There would, the, the, the development cycle, so to speak, the refinement and uh, release and utilization and dissemination of these things would be so slow that I would pretty much agree with the time frame that you're telling me, Andrew, suggested of several decades. However... Maybe even over 100 years. Possibly, yes. And, of course, I want to emphasize that the time frame for the development of the technology, in other words, the first question, is extremely speculative. When I say 25 or 30 years, I say that as a 50-50% probability. I think there's at least a 10% chance that we will take more than 100 years to get there. So I want to make sure that's clear. However, with regard to delivering these things, once we have the proof of concept, I think what we need to take into account is the probability, in my view, the very high probability, that the public will initiate a complete overhaul of the regulatory regime relative to what we see today. At the moment, the thing is that medicine basically doesn't work very well, and it can't provide very much of a benefit in terms of serious postponement of age-related ill health. So the public are not putting serious pressure on, the, on policymakers to 
get things to the clinic more quickly. But what's going to happen in this case is that, first of all, we're going to see proof of concept of SANS in the laboratory in mice. I think that that's probably less than 10 years away. And that is going to cause a complete change, a complete um, inversion, really, of the attitude that the public currently has to the possibility of defeating aging. When you have expert, most experts, not just me, but most experts going out on television and saying, yes, this demonstrates that it's only a matter of time before we develop seriously effective anti-aging therapies for humans, then people in general are going to say to themselves, well, let's make it less time. And it will simply be impossible to get elected unless you have a manifesto commitment to have what we can genuinely call a war on aging, a complete overhaul of the way that things are currently regulated. The biggest change that that is going to mean is essentially, I think, that drugs are going to be approved for, um, for, for prescription at the point of phase two of clinical trials rather than phase three as we see them today. That will mean that the development cycle is very greatly speeded up. And, and what about the, the, the reply that uh, there's a very long timeline from proving the concept in mice and other lab animals to taking it uh, at the human level. Just like, for example, in terms of cloning, we managed to, to clone Dolly, I think it was in 1995, and we're no closer to cloning a human. Well, first of all, we are certainly a great deal closer. Uh, a couple of years ago, they were able to clone monkeys for the first time. Uh, but the point here is that the timeline that I predict does actually incorporate that issue. I've said that I think that we are very likely to take about 15 years to get from getting these things working in mice to getting them properly working in humans. And that's despite the fact that during that period we will already now have this completely altered and much more aggressive attitude to the development of human therapies than we have today. Excellent. Um, so do you think that what is the biggest hurdle on accomplishing this, uh, on the road to accomplishing this? Is, is there a single issue that we need to overcome, or is it a multitude of many smaller issues that there's would be the stepping stones? There's definitely a multitude of issues. Sense, by definition, is really a divide-and-conquer strategy for combating aging, and as such, we've got a lot of things to do. I think we can certainly say that some of those things are considerably harder than others, for example, some of them almost certainly are going to require very good, safe, and effective gene therapy, which is, of course, something that we are still some way away from delivering. But, again, if we go back to the concept of stage one, i.e. the proof of concept of these therapies in mice in the laboratory, then we factor out some of those very important difficulties, especially that one, um, because we're actually quite good at gene therapy in mice already. So I think that the um, technical issues are, you know, there are plenty of them, but I, say, I would say there's no one thing that's really standing out as the major difficulty. However, the real answer to your question, uh, stated more generally, is yes, there is one single difficulty that stands head and shoulders above all the others, and that is funding. At the moment, there isn't nearly enough money in this area. There isn't a great deal of work that needs to be done that isn't being done because it costs more than the people who are involved have to spend, and that is undoubtedly slowing things down. It was about 
six or seven years ago now that I started first to uh, predict time frames for the development of these therapies. And the time frames that I predicted were always contingent on having adequate funding for all of this research. Um, and basically, I think that in those six or seven years, we've only made about two years of progress. Um, but that's about how much I would have expected to make, given the amount of funding that has actually been available. And, and you've mentioned that the actual process is accelerating, too. Is that really the case? And what would be the indicators of that? I believe that, that, that progress is accelerating, but you're quite right that it's difficult to pinpoint real, real quantitative measures of that, of the sort that one might be able to point to if one looks at, for example, CPU speed or, yes, yeah. or, or whatever in computing. Um, I think really it can be measured largely by, by, by measures that one can argue for the validity for, or against the validity of, like the number of scientists or the number of papers that are being published or the number of patents that are being issued, um, and so on, because, of course, um, the bulk of such work may not be of any particular relevance. Um, but I certainly feel that things are moving faster, and um, I think most biologists agree with that, even though, as I say, it really is just an intuition. Mm -hmm. Now, putting the science to the side here for a second, let's look at a couple of other relevant issues. What is the worst obstacle outside of science. You just mentioned funding, but is that the worst obstacle or is it uh, sort of the recalcitrant attitude towards death as being the natural ending of life or, or something else for that matter? I think it really is just the funding. Ultimately, what's required in order to get this to happen is just three things. Number one, you have to have scientists who have the expertise to be able to take these ideas forward and get them completed, get them fully implemented. Number two, you have to have those scientists be interested so that, given the resources, they would be actually willing to work on this in their laboratories rather than working on more um, uh, aiming lower, shall we say, and uh, doing less ambitious things. And thirdly, you need that funding itself. Now, steps one and two, in my view, are pretty much complete. I have been able over the past decade or more in my interactions with the various scientific communities um, to not only to identify the world-leading scientists in all of these relevant areas, but also to get to know them, to get them to understand why I'm interested in their work, and to get them very enthusiastic indeed about applying their work to the particular problem, the particular component of sense that I discussed with them. So they are definitely hot to trot. It's really all about the money. So if what you say is true, um, let me see. What do you think? I think it was Arthur Schopenhauer who said that uh, truth goes through three stages. Uh, originally, it's uh, ridiculed or ignored. The second stage is when it's uh, violently opposed. And the third stage is when it's basically accepted for granted. Yes. Where about on that continuum do you think we are right now with respect to defeating aging? Yeah, I think we're mostly there. I think that the stage where this concept of sense in, in the scientific community is violently opposed is more or less on the decline. It's definitely on the decline. It was at its peak in, I would say, 2006, when I was fighting a number of running battles with, um, with various people in the scientific community. And... As time's gone on, that has really calmed down because I was very successful in, if you like, calling the bluff of the various um, uh, 
of, of the various critics who hadn't really done their homework to understand what I was saying or to understand what work had already been done that I was basing my optimism on. Um, yeah, so I, I would say uh, we're, we're pretty close to the point where this is accepted as um, pretty much taken for granted as at least a legitimate approach to combating aging, uh, even if not necessarily one that's going to work. And of course, that's really all I'm aiming for. I'm not trying to say that we already know that the sense approach is going to work. I'm just saying that we have sufficient reason to think that it might work, that it's definitely something we ought to be investing in. Since I already started bringing sort of long-dead philosophers, let me bring in good old Thomas Malthus in our conversation here and, and ask you this. Provided you're successful in defeating aging, uh, I mean, currently our population is about 6.7 or, say, roughly 7 billion people, and there's some estimate which say that by the 2050s we'll be looking at over 9 billion Provided you're successful at defeating aging, say, about the 2050s or so, how do you think would that impact on issues such as uh, uh, climate change, environmental degradation, overconsumption of resources, and so on and so mm -hmm. on? The argument right. is, of yeah, course, I mean, that our plan planet cannot uh, sustain uh, that amount of humans. And therefore, if they live indefinitely right. or for a thousand years, it would get even worse. Right. And this is a question that comes up all the time, of course. Um, but there are really two rather strong answers to it. The first one is, if one looks at the trajectory of global population, it is actually only affected rather slightly by the death rate. Actually, less than half as many people die each day as the number of people that are born. And Remember, even if we were to completely eliminate all death, just like that, tomorrow, um, still, people are only getting older at one year per year. So all we would have to do would be halve the birth rate, um, and we'd be done. You know, we'd still have a declining, a declining global population. Now, of course, halving the birth rate is not trivial, but if we look at what's happened in the world over the past few decades, we can see that most of the areas of the world in which the birth rate was high have indeed more than halved their birth rate already. So it's not nearly such a problem as you might think. The other thing, however, which I think is a much stronger, an even stronger argument about this, is an argument based on choice. The question is here, should we develop these therapies sooner rather than later? Because let's face it, they're going to get developed at some point. Should we develop them sooner rather than later? And I say that it's perfectly clear that we have a moral obligation to, deliver, to develop them as soon as we can, simply because the sooner we develop them, the sooner people, the sooner humanity of the future will have the choice whether to use those therapies or not. And if we delay and prevaricate and say, oh dear, overpopulation, let's not go there, then what we're doing is condemning a whole cohort of, of human population to an unnecessary early and unnecessarily painful death when we could have saved their lives. And it seems very clear to me that we have absolutely no right to do that. We have a duty to develop these therapies. Let's face it, people just don't want to get sick. And most people are pretty keen on not getting sick, even if it involves other sacrifices in their life, like, for example, not having as many kids as they would otherwise be interested in having. I see. So, you briefly mentioned about the... the 
the fact that, in your opinion, the sort of assault on your idea, on your ideas and, and on your campaign to defeat aging peaked around 2006 or so, what's the worst that you have had to endure uh, during your work uh, for, since you began working on defeating aging? Well, a number of my colleagues have, just, have focused unjustifiably on the longevity side effect of my proposals. They've said, well, they don't, they don't like the sound of the um, longevity predictions, therefore they presume that what I'm saying must be nonsense, therefore without actually uh, analyzing it to find out what I'm saying, they just launch into public criticism. And this doesn't really happen anymore because people have learned their lesson. They've understood that actually when they do, when they are forced to look at the details, that there are quite a lot of details there that are perfectly well founded in scientific legitimacy. So, you know, people have said things like that what I'm doing is scientifically irresponsible or scientifically uh, nonsensical. Um, someone once described me as representing the paramilitary wing of gerontology, which I thought was fairly amusing. Um, you know, that sort of thing. It's all been really quite lighthearted. Actually, in a documentary movie that I watched about you titled Do You Want to Live Forever, I think one of the people there said something like uh, that you could be properly put in jail for your ideas. Yes, yes, Martin Raff. If I Raff. remember. That's right, Martin Raff said that. Um, I never quite figured out what he meant. I mean, um, I don't think anyone else could figure it out either. I couldn't I, understand the exact justification for that to myself. But I did, I, I did get to put it on the back of my book as a quote. <laughs> okay. So that ranks up there with the worst things, perhaps. I guess. Yeah. All right. So um, I know you, your time is very limited, so I will begin bringing our conversation to a close today um, and ask you only two or three more quick ones. Um, I was watching another interview with you yesterday, and... An interesting fact that I want to ask you about is that you've mentioned that you've noticed three groups of people who tend to support the Sense Foundation, IT professionals, libertarians, and Canadians. Now, I am Canadian, so I, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. Can you elaborate, like, why would you think that Canadians tend to support you overall more than, say, Americans, for example, or, or people in the UK? Yeah, it's a complete mystery. I mean, I think I can pretty much understand why IT professionals are uh, supported. I think they basically just get it. I think IT professionals in general are familiar and comfortable with extrapolation and with the idea that if something is good, then more of it is probably even better unless one has reason to believe otherwise. So the idea of simply planning ahead and developing therapies that will stop you from getting sick, even though that's not going to happen for a long time, is, very, is a very easy sell to people like that. <coughs> Similarly, libertarians, simply because they're already um, the sort of people who, who you know, are very individualist, don't like to um, just accept what they were told by their parents or whatever, um, like to question uh, what, uh, dogma. And you know, once you start, once you, once you, once you're comfortable with questioning dogma in general, um, it gets pretty hard to carry on believing that aging is a good thing. But with Canadians, I just have no idea. And, um, and I've got to say, the overabundance, the over-representation of Canadians in this field, not just in support of the Sense Foundation per se, but in the field in general, is 
you know, probably even more extreme than for the other two groups. I would say that there are actually, in absolute numerical terms, there are probably more Canadians actively involved than there are Americans, despite the fact that there are like a factor of 10 difference in population. So it's completely extraordinary. And uh, I, I, I just have no explanation, but I'm not complaining. And, and that, that also completely mystifies me, especially since, for example, even though I'm located physically in Canada, about 94% of the audience of my blog and my website and this podcast is uh, coming from the uh, United States. So uh, huh. that's where you have the, the sort of largest impact in terms of popular media. I think the American media has had much more coverage on related topics than the Canadian media. And yet people who are actually uh, doing something about it seem to be north of the border. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Okay, um, we're coming to a close here with the last two questions. Um, so the, the second last would be, uh, last time your major message was that longevity escape velocity may be closer than we think. Would you like to add something or to enhance it or to maybe add a secondary message in addition to this one today? Well, yeah, I can certainly elaborate on that. I mean, I normally talk about longevity escape velocity as the point where, but the point that we will get to when we have successfully added maybe 30 or so years of healthy life to the longevity of people who are already in middle age when we start, let's say 60 years old when we start the therapies. And that <clears throat> that's, you know, pretty arbitrary, to be honest. Um, the question is, you know, how far do we really have to get? How comprehensive do these therapies really have to be in order that we can actually knock back um, age-related ill health by a rate of more than one year per year, which is, of course, what's required. And I think that we might very well get, the, uh, get to that point when we've only been able to add 15 years to healthy lifespan. Now, exactly how much easier that is in terms of the quality of the therapies that we have to deliver remains to be seen. So I don't know how much um, easier longevity escape velocity will be than it would be if, it, if we really did take 30 years. Um, but I think it's important not to be, for us not to be taken by surprise, for us not to just, you know, look at the thing and say, well, it's at least 25 years away, I'll worry about it when it's only 15 years away. I think it's important to remember that it might be pretty close. And that's also why I focus so strongly on the fact that the really pivotal event will not be the arrival of these therapies, but rather the arrival of proof of concept of these therapies in the laboratory that gets people, that gets these therapies to be widely anticipated. Because that's going to be much sooner. I see. And, and the closing question would be, uh, what's the best effect, uh, what in effect would be the best way to support your work? Uh, you've mentioned the lack of funding and the huge importance thereof. Uh, so would you say that it's best if people just donate or do you have any other recommendations? Well, I guess I have two recommendations. Certainly to donate as much as possible. Is there a minimum amount that people can, can give to the Sense Foundation? There is no minimum. No, much, no, 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 no amount is too small. Absolutely not. Um, however, I think the really critical point to make here is advocacy getting the word out, getting other people comfortable with all of this. Ultimately, the 
largest amount of money is always going to come from the wealthiest people. And the wealthiest people do not necessarily make up their minds about what to give money to on their own as in, in isolation. Rather, they talk to other people. They get that, that no, they, they, they develop confidence in the wisdom of giving money to a particular cause on the basis of their perception of its legitimacy as judged by people that they trust. And, of course, those people, in turn, uh, get their attitude to a particular crusade on the basis of people that they trust or what they read in the papers or whatever. So, really, the whole corpus of advocacy, of getting this thing talked about, talked about intelligently, talked about knowledgeably, and therefore talked about positively, is absolutely instrumental to hastening the arrival of sufficient funds to get this to happen faster. Excellent. And, and the, other, the other way other than... So advocacy and donation, Th those are the yeah, two best ways. Yeah, yeah, give us money and persuade other people to give us money. That's Fantastic. what it comes down to. Fantastic. Okay, well, Dr. DeGray, thank you very much for taking time to be on Singularity One-on-One -on -one today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me again.